Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my honor and my delight to be in dialogue with Dr. Romina Yalonetsky. We will be discussing her newly published book, Gente Como Uno, Class, Belonging, and Transnationalism in Jewish Life in Lima, published in Boston by Academic Studies Press 2021. Romina is full professor in the Department of Humanities, Arts, and Sciences at the Universidad de Ingeniería y Tecnología in Peru. Romina, thank you so much for your availability, and thank you so much for all the sacrifice you invested in this book. Thank you, Ari. It's an honor to meet you and, and to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I I hope um I really hope that uh, listeners uh will get an interest have an interest in in the book. To begin, can you tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar and the writer you are today? Sure. Um, I was born in Peru, uh, the daughter of Argentinian Argentine immigrant parents. I was born in 1980 here in Lima. Um, I I was raised here in what one someone could say the middle class or the upper middle class of Lima. I attended the the only Jewish day school we have in the country, uh, which was uh, create, founded by uh, immigrant Jews in the 1940s. And um, and I basically I lived here until I was 23 years old. I actually went to college here. I I studied philosophy at the Catholic University in Lima, and then I I moved to Israel to pursue graduate studies at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. My dream was always to to study Jewish studies, which of course. Were, were nowhere to, to be found here in Peru. I remember when I enrolled at the Pontifical University, Catholic University in Peru, I, I wanted to study history and I met some professor and told him I wanted to write a dissertation or, or a thesis on, on Jewish history. And he was like, there's no one here that's going to be able to, to work on it because we know nothing about it. So, so I went to Israel, I got my degree 
And, and then I moved to Argentina. I lived in Argentina for four years in Buenos Aires, which also allowed me to, 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 to understand or to learn more about my, my own family origins and also how larger Latin American communities had evolved and what the, you know, the diversity within the communities, how, how did that work? And then I went back to Peru in 2010. I've been working at different universities as a teacher, as a university administrator. And then I decided to pursue doctoral studies at the Catholic University here in sociology. And then I, I, started doing research for what later became the the book we're discussing today. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? Um, well, I was hoping to 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 make a small, a tiny contribution to the larger or wider debate on the small Jewish communities, especially small Jewish communities in large cities because there's a difference you know there's a difference between like a small jewish community in like a rural town in brazil or whatever and then a small jewish community in like a large metropolitan urban setting like lima also i i was hoping to to give a bit more visibility to 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 peruvian jews which like well, like other smaller <laughs> jewish communities have been overlooked by research uh, as of recent usually when you talk about latin american jewry people think about argentina mexico brazil perhaps venezuela because he has been on the news lately cuba and that's it but mainly argentina mexico and brazil so i was just hoping to to set a foot on the you know on the whole debate and see see what happens i thought on the one hand i also wanted to to see how how the Jewish experience or in in Peru could shed light about um, you know diversity and immigrants and minorities in Peru how how not being part of the colonial story or it would how how did, it, did that help or I don't know yeah. I, I would I would say that that was helpful. This tiny minority, uh, you know, enter the upper middle classes in in the matter of a few decades. Um, I think it it tells a lot about what being Peruvian is, not just you know being Jewish. I I actually think it's very it's a very unique experience, and it's of course different from being. I don't know, a Brazilian Jew in Sao Paulo or a Chilean Jew in, in Santiago. It is very Peruvian. It's a very Peruvian experience. So I had also wanted to, to start a discussion with anthropologists and sociologists that are studying Peru, especially urban anthropologists. So I wanted to see how that experience I know what what that experience had in common with that of other immigrant minorities and religious minorities. What are the primary themes in your book? What argument does your book advance? Well, um, as, as many books do, it 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 provides more questions than answers, I think. But um, I would say that it it shows how um how the experience of this particular minority has been shaped not just by 
by um, events uh, at the national level, but what happened in Peru in a particular set of time. I study the community from the, the organized community from the 1940s until the first decade of the 21st century, um, focusing in like particular uh, landmarks or historical landmarks. But how how the experience of this community has been shaped by, of course, the creation of the state of Israel and the process of Israel becoming a highly developed country, a strong military force, and then an economic an economically successful country. Like how that shapes it, it would have been much different had it not been for Israel for had, had the destiny of Israel been different. I think. Uh, and and the, the moment in which all these things happen and how also uh, the U.S. starts viewing Jews as, I don't know, non-Christian Europeans also shapes the fact that non-Christian Peruvians of European ascent or descent, however Eastern European or not the right kind of European, uh, become also white. And also when the U.S. and Israel start getting stronger relations in the 1960s and onwards, how that also helps, allows Jews in, in the Americas or elsewhere in the Americas, especially in countries that value the, the relationship with the U.S. as a, as a I don't know, as, a, as an advantage to, to enter the higher, um, I don't know, places in society, positions in society. So I that's what I, I try to track and my message kind of is, I wanna see what the message is, like uh, how, how all these other uh, um, processes shape the, the way some people view other ones. Of course, uh, changes within the Catholic church, the, the Second Vatican Council were key and, and you can actually trace it if you, if you write a timeline and you see, you know how things going on in the 1960s it might sound uh, trivial but uh start shaping things up in the 1990s and things look completely different from what one what might have been had they not happened that way what would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today mm. that's a wonderful question um i would really like listeners to to consider how um us in the global south are also have our own view of of how things develop and how it view must be it can be a bit different for instance i actually attended this um this institute a summer institute in the uk last year uh designed to or aimed at uh, training college professors on, you know, how to create courses on global anti-Semitism. And it was funny because all the European and American, North American, um, I don't know, professors and teachers kind of held on some view of the world. And then there was a colleague who was a lawyer from Rwanda and then, and, and, and I was there, and then there was someone from Mexico and us from the global south felt, had like a completely different views of things as if you know how uh, the world if you could trace an imaginary line in the middle and we were we were actually upside down things things from a completely different point of view so i would really love for listeners to to see or to consider how how jewish life elsewhere in like the margins of the world 
um, can also be meaningful or reflect on how everything else is going on. How how the you know like the larger the the, the views of people in Western Europe or North America might be representative of the experience of those minorities and people, but not they aren't representative of everyone's experience. That's that's probably and in that that I find fascinating actually. Um there's also this other thing that I would like for listeners to consider how you know how uh some people are really focused on genetics nowadays, right? They feel like oh if your ancestors came from this same part and then they, you must share so many things i don't know and that i i've found out that that doesn't really work that way how i i can have much more in common with someone from latin america who came from another part of the world than i did than from someone like my family came mostly from from the ukraine but they came to to the americas in the in the early 20th century and even though for people in Peru, I might sound Russian or my name sounds Russian or from some, and I recently met some from, someone from the Ukraine, a Jew who was, who told me, I cannot understand how with those last names, you don't speak a Slavic language. Whereas I met this person from Latin America whose relatives came from Syria or something. And we, it took us five minutes to find people in common. We were laughing at the same jokes and how, so how our lived experience, our language, you know, our values, our aesthetics are so much more similar than, you know, genetics or the past or how it, that, that to me is, it might be a very simple message, but sometimes we, we just overlook it. So that, I think. <laughs> what is your book's contribution to 20th century Jewish history? In what ways does the history of Peruvian Jewry complement or challenge assumptions and orthodoxies about Jewish life and Jewish history after World War II? Mm, yeah, really good question. So I don't know how, how much of a contribution that is. Um, I'd say it, it's probably more of a contribution now that, that you ask about it directly on, on Peruvian history, rather. No, it's both, I guess. Um, Perhaps, okay, let me put it this way. Usually the people writing about the small, the smaller, the not so visible Jewish communities were like older men, community leaders who were retiring and had all this time in their hands. I think that happened elsewhere, right? At some point in the 1970s or 80s. So they usually um, felt like they were writing about, like from a very neutral standardized, I don't know, point of view. What I feel that uh, my book brings with it uh, well, all the academic process, right? Reviews, uh, papers being presented at various conferences, the input of so many colleagues. So in that way, I'm, I wanna say my generation of writers, I think, I hope, I mean, this doesn't sound as pretentious as it might sound. I don't want to be disrespectful of the work from people that came before us. Actually, we could never do what we did. We could have never done what we did without their work. But in some ways that this work uh, enters into a dialogue with that previous work. And it, I think it, in, it uh, includes the views and voices of many other people. For instance, 
my book incorporates a chapter on the importance of, of women and the changing of uh, patterns of family formation and how women have been reshaping this community. That would have never come up on the previous works of these retired old leaders who were all men who basically saw the same people. For my generation, we've all been exposed to to the large to society at large because women we've been we were college educated, we have friends and family now who are outside of the Jewish community. Everyone now nowadays has relatives that are married outside the community. That wasn't necessarily the case before, and if it was, people would usually hide those non-Jewish origins. Now it's not a matter. It's a matter of. I mean, it's 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 of, of pride, I guess. You know, diversity. It's, it's such a good thing. So, I guess there's that as a contribution. I don't know. I don't know how the you know the the previous authors feel about it, but um, we'll see. <laughs> how has the role of women in Peruvian Jewish society changed and evolved in the twentieth and twenty first centuries? So. This is what I found. Usually, um, there weren't as many people coming to Peru, right? In the early 20th century, Peru wasn't a very attractive country. Um, We were were also located, or the main entrances to the country are from the Pacific, so it's not that easy to come to Peru. It wasn't a very successful economy, and there weren't as many people here so people weren't calling on relatives as much so the people that came I don't know sort of came randomly I guess there were all these weird stories but there weren't as many people coming here so that means that there they weren't at at some point there weren't as many Jewish born women in the country and many people married people who weren't born Jewish and they somehow they decided they were part of a community there was this rabbi and they some of them were converted into Judaism and then there were all these and people were having kids and whatever so most people kind of and, and then so what I'm trying to say is that family formation was either a family of two Jewish born people or a Jewish born man and a woman who wasn't born Jewish but then somehow was considered part considered part of the community and which i think means that um the cultural and the educational path assumed by the family was mainly set by the father or the man the man the, the person the jewish born man and the mother who converted or who had been born here was had to give up on her heritage or something that's from many families not all of them of course no some families were formed by but still men had like a very strong uh, imprint or whatever and whatever was 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 being done the creation of the school and, and also the role of women in the community was very i mean they did stuff that they did uh, they fund they did fundraising you know through selling cakes but as long as the domestic uh experience was i mean they could leave the domestic realm as long as they were doing the same activities outside as they were as the the activities they were performing outside outside reflected their domestic reality and they wouldn't be interfering in the you know larger or the most important and most valued uh decision making like money or politics or whatever that was in the 60s and 70s by the 1990s some women were so or were coming from such powerful families 
there were two things, right? That at first, the fact that there weren't too many of us, because in the 1990s, in the 70s already, but by the 1990s, a significant portion of the population, of the Jewish population in Peru, started leaving the country. Um, so our school, for instance, that was built for over a thousand students, started having less than 600, 500, until they reached like, um, you know, I don't know, uh, like 400, and now we're, uh, we have even less, even fewer students than than that. So people were leaving the country. So and, and it was kind of difficult to to find a, a, a to to find someone you would want to form a family with, with people you have known all your life. There weren't as many choices. And there were the first ones to marry outside the community, but remaining inside the community were people from the wealthiest families. And they started because this is and, and these were women who started who, who who met at college with these really well-off upper class families, Peruvian families, Catholic families. And they but they decided the women decided to raise their kids Jewish and within the community. Uh, this happened in the 1990s. There are like a couple of very prominent cases. And what people within the community started thinking was like, as long as these men who are not who were not born Jewish and are not converting into Judaism come from these distinguished families, we're good. <laughs> but um that that might not I, I don't I haven't registered cases like that before the 1990s. There were a couple of women who were born Jewish that married non-Jewish men of course they were from middle class families and stuff but they, they were I don't I'm not gonna say ostracized but they weren't it wasn't valued in the 1990s it became something good as long as of course the family was raised within the community which is also of course some families haven't decided have decided not to do that but um I think it's it's um it's telling that women were the ones deciding where my kids are going to be raised Jewish. And it's not because of a religious, I think, priority. I mean, of course, the other religions aren't, aren't also as attractive, I want to say, but it's also because of the networks and the that being Jewish, I don't know, allow you to belong to, I guess, or the fact that Judaism and Jews are, were at that time viewed favorably through U.S. popular culture, or through the idea of you know a successful country in Israel. That's well, those are my views, I guess. So the role of women, once that happened, the role of women started changing slowly, rather slowly. And nowadays, there are a couple of women sitting on the boards of of the congregations. Uh, there we've got the first female president of the board at the Jewish school, but it's only now, 2020s. Um, it took a long time. Of course, women are still selling cakes to, to raise funds, which is, of course, a, a really important activity, But and, and, and we don't have as many men doing it, but um, but so many more of us are, are doing other things. Of course, it's still we're still far from having a female rabbi, or a female president of a Jewish congregation, even though even though some other communities have, 
Guatemala had a female uh, president of the Jewish community, for instance, even though she wasn't allowed to, she wasn't counted in the Minyan, which I find fascinating. She, she's a, this is a Harvard graduate lawyer who is not counted as a full person next to people who, who are not, of course, as successful or as brilliant as she is. And she would accept that because not doing that or challenging that would mean they would be outside of this network of officially recognized Jewish communities uh, that identify with some sort of Orthodox Judaism, with the consensus. What does your book teach us about Jewish-Catholic relations? What are the strengths and weaknesses of Catholic-Jewish relations in Peru? <sighs> Those are the questions I really love. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for posing it. Um, there are well Jews in Peru as a community have been have worked really hard for decades to remain outside of the spotlight invisible if possible which is now it, it's something that the new generation is trying to redefine they're saying why do we need to be invisible all the time we would like to be a part of it to, to actually engage more with these other people and Anyhow, of course, um, experiences of anti-Semitism of the previous generations or the fear of disappearing as a collective identity, which I think are very valid, of course. Um, well, they, they tend to tended to permeate the decisions of the previous leadership. And I think nowadays people that have traveled more and have seen how other communities in the region have developed um are are reconsidering um so uh what i state in the book is that uh with the second vatican council uh the 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 way people started talking about jews and judaism changed significantly peru being a, a massive catholic country at that time in the 1960s 50s and 60s so i i i actually had some interviewees that remember uh, the time, the, the particular time in which people stopped, you know, repeating old anti-Semitic uh, diatribe tropes and, and started talking about Jews as the older brothers of faith or the, whatever, our, our brothers in faith or our older brothers or the roots of, of Christianity. And, and this is actually very interesting. And at the same time, I think it's a bit... I'm very cautious when I meet someone that that shows that much excitement about uh, biblical Judaism or biblical, I don't know, the Hebrews and the Israelites because I feel that um that they don't they tend to I, uh, it is probably a prejudice I have they tend to forget about the the centuries of persecution and suffering that we. That, that the Jewish people experienced on under you know Christian dominance. So I'm I'm very it's scary for me when people are like, oh my God, you speak Hebrew, Shema Israel. I'm like, oh, okay, but you know what? We also spoke Yiddish and we also had to leave the lands we were being only tolerated in, and it wasn't easy and it wasn't fun. So so that that's always scary for me. So what I would say is that I don't think the Catholic I don't know the, the regular people. Most of them are Catholic, but there are, there's a an increasing portion of the non-Jewish population or the Peruvian population who's also migrating from Catholic from the Catholic Church to to Reformed churches, you know, evangelical, 
I don't know, some forms that are very popular in the region and that also promote uh, social and economic mobility, more so than the Catholic Church, which has remained very colonial and hierarchical. So I think that um, that has led that and the change of, of the Pope, right? We now have an Argentinian Pope, Francisco, who also has kind of shown like a different face to the church um, that probably has had an influence in the way that Catholic Peruvians view Jews. Most people in Peru have no idea that Jews exist nowadays. Um, perhaps or, or or they might get confused and if you if you tell them that you're Jewish they'll they'll be like so are you Israeli and you're like no I'm Peruvian just like you and so th that might happen uh with uh, I would say many people um we actually we met someone in one well we had we my parents used to work with this person who who thought that we, that our family didn't celebrate Christmas because they were Argentinian, because they weren't Peruvian. So there's this confusion between nationality and cultural or religious or ethnic belonging or traditional heritage. So that that's common here in, in Peru. I wanna say that even though it's not that common that to find a, a priest that's gonna say that in, you know, in the Holy Week that, it's Jews that killed God, and we need to to do something about it. So that that that's pretty old fashioned. I would I want to say, um, and and their their relations are good, of course, but um, I wouldn't say there's like a, a I don't know, a continued dialogue, a constant dialogue, mostly because our rabbis are brought from are are not Peruvian born, and if the rabbis have the the if it's their responsibility to to lead you know or to to lead these uh these conversations with with other uh, religions usually when they come for three four years they're not really that interested as of recently the fact that some evangelical groups are being pro-israel that has raised some interest in creating this intercultural interreligious ties but I don't know. There's only one congregation in Peru, however, that has been working uh, in, in that direction, which is the um, Masorti, you know, the right, the conservative um, uh, synagogue here in in Peru. But um, but it's still a very orthodox-like conservatism. It's not like in the U.S. or elsewhere. So, but they have actually been active and establishing bridges and communication with with non-jews with uh, with catholics aside from that of course the fact that we are interacting more either at the workplace um which we didn't use to as much because if we had a if most jews were business owners they didn't really have to in, interact as much with non-jews whereas Nowadays, there are more jews in peru that work at organizations and they need to interact next to non-Jewish um, peers, professional peers. So that opens up a whole array of, of interactions, not which not usually, you know, have to be shaped by religious, um, I don't know, considerations, but that I think it's, it's something that the newer generations are, are experiencing. Um, and aside from that, and then also the, the formation of new families with people who weren't born Jewish. So there are so many of us 
there are attending um, I don't know uh, Catholic events like uh, conf not confirmation no what's the other one the first communion or Christmas dinners or it's not like Catholics in the upper middle class are that observant anyhow but um it, it it's I even though we're still a bit invisible it's become a bit more normal or more common to have uh, more interactions and to be a bit more a part of what's happening elsewhere but um still every now and then there might be I don't know someone in Congress that says something about Jews controlling whatever and you know repeating these anti-Semitic um uh diatribes or tropes just because just because someone else is doing it or just to have to try and get um the attention but most people don't even know what a jew is I, i'd say in peru can you tell us about the colegio leon pinello why is this institution a central part of your study well thank you so much for that question colegio leon pinello is the uh, jewel of the crown for for the jewish community in lima it's actually the main, if not the only, socializing uh, institution, the one institution that actually promotes and reinforces Jewish identity in the city, I I, I argue. Um, it, which is interesting because usually one, one would think that the, the, the synagogues, the Jewish congregations, are more invested in, in promoting, creating, cultivating, a Jewish experience for for members of the community, but um, even though it used to, the school used to be a bit influenced by the rabbis or or um, anyhow or or what was going on in Israel, it's actually the the, the congregations or the, the synagogues are places that are dominated by older men. So the young people. Um, find themselves in like this sort of island of Judaism and Israeli pride within a massive Christian environment. Like it's very hard to find Judaism and Jewish Jewish themed things in a city like Peru. If you go to Buenos Aires, for instance, you might and you are around Passover, Pesach, you'll see that uh, you'll see this uh, huge sign stating that they're going to be celebrating an urban Passover, which is open to the whole municipality, district, or the town. And it's going to be out in the open at a park. And it's it, it's it's so so Judaism is part of what's going on in the city. That doesn't happen here. Everything that happens happens inside closed doors because we're afraid because we don't know. But I mean, it would be great most of the things relating to Judaism happen that way. It's not the same thing with Israeli themed stuff, like the embassy or, for instance, there's this uh, um, Israeli born businessman who has been in Peru for like 60 years or so, who has this huge factory, mattress factory in a working class neighborhood. And there's like a huge Israeli flag flying in that neighborhood where no Jews live. But um, so Israel has its own, you know, uh, way of being in the city, but it's still not, it, it, as a Jew, you, you don't find yourself in the city. You know, there's just this bakery that opened up, that opened shop uh, after the pandemic that sells halot, but these these are the best 
halot in the world. And they're very fancy gourmet halot. And she's been featured uh, at, with uh, the JTA or on and all these Jewish publications. And this is a young girl. She's 30 years old, who's like the best baker on earth. And um, and people come to, the, to this bakery and they bring this halot to New York. That's the only place, and you actually go there, and the people, you know, the um, the waiters or the people selling selling at the shop, who are not Jewish, would discuss or talk to non-Jewish customers something like, "So this is the challah for Shabbat, and this other challah you can have like a whatever." And that that is startling. That that wasn't the case. That has never been the case. Even when the community was larger, we've always been trying to hide to not not be on the spotlight, and then. She she's the only person I would say, and that is not a community effort. This is our a business actually. But she's the only one who's bringing Judaism outside the walls of the community. I know you asked me something completely different, and I'm, I apologize for for not following. But um, but this is really important. So so she's and she of course she uses social media. She uses Instagram and all these reels where she tells people we're going to. To um, we we made this special halal for Sukkot and Sukkot is this you know festivity and then but she also makes a special a special halal for for Peru's Independence Day with like Peruvian flavors so that that that's actually uh, that that should be studied um, but but she wasn't open and I don't think she was working when when I wrote the book had, had it been that case, the case but let's go back to the school. So, you know, with, with the Zionist imprint and then with the, in the school is a place where you would learn Hebrew, where you would be interacting with Jewish teachers from other countries, from Argentina, for instance, or from Israel. Um, but most, most teachers aren't Jewish. And then, uh, yeah, it's kind of an island of, of, of Jewish culture. And, and it, it has always been very treasured by the community up until the last couple of years where a new generation has become a bit more um, skeptic or cynical of of the value of the school uh it was in the 1970s it was considered one of the best i'm sorry schools in the country we had college professors who would ask i mean of our graduates where where did they get this really good training from it's not the case nowadays. So yeah, I, I'd say that um, it's the main, it's just institution that has helped um, create uh, a Jewish sense of cohesion or identity for decades since its inception. It's now under threat, I think. Who is Rabbi Guillermo Bronstein? Can you say more about him? Yes, Rabbi Guillermo Bronstein. He's he's a very important figure in the community. He came to Peru in 1985, I want to say. Um, he was actually trained by the famous uh, Rabbi Marshall Mayer in Argentina. He's one of the first graduates from the Rabbinical Seminary in Buenos Aires, which is, um, you know, how um, conservative Judaism entered Latin America, conservative and reformed Judaism entered Latin America in the 1960s and 70s. So Guillermo Bronstein was um, recruited or hired by the, the Yeke community, the community of, of German Jews 
that were already dwindling or disappearing. They were all dying. And this became the community that accepted um, these couples made of uh, a person who was born Jewish and a person who wasn't born Jewish, but wasn't, and, and but the family as a whole wasn't willing to convert, uh, through, you know, following the Orthodox requirements. So they made a conversion as a the way conservative Judaism accepts it. So as they would have never been accepted uh, in the other communities, in the Sephardic or the Ashkenazi communities, who, who only recognized orthodox conversions. I'm sorry. Um, so, and he became a, a key figure first because he he managed to um, to hold this community together. The the conservative, well, actually, they became conservative and started identifying themselves as Masorti with with his presence. I I would say, um, and he, he he has been really successful. In at first, he faced a lot of uh, resistance um, from leaders from the other congregations who wouldn't recognize his congregation as fully Jewish. But then again, this also showed some sort of, I don't know, double standard because it was the children of the leaders of the other communities who were marrying off or outside the community and weren't willing to, to, to you know, to keep a kosher home or to, or to observe the holidays. So in that sense, this community allowed many people and the community as a whole to to remain secular or to to live within a modern world without having to to be excluded from you know if you have to go to college on saturday you can do it if you want to go play soccer at soccer at the jewish sports club on a saturday morning you'll do it and you have to drive for 40 minutes and no one will question that or if you want to eat you know the fanciest uh, seafood <laughs> there is in this part of the world you can do it and and that's that actually happens here. So the modern upper middle class uh, style of living wouldn't enter into conflict with the Jewish identity. So that that helped a lot. It used to be the smallest uh, congregation, and it, I think it, it's the second largest out of three. So um, and 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 Guillermo Bronstein's leadership has been he he he's a very very. Uh, he's like a mensch. He's a very, very nice person. He's very, he has faced so much, um, what do I want to say? Uh, so many, uh, I mean, they were um, rejected by, by the previous leaders of the community. And he has been able to face these rejections with the utmost I don't know why I was saying grace. Like he's a very gracious person. And he's also been very, I mean, if you go around town, like to churches or from reformed churches, like the German Lutheran or whatever, and also the Catholic church, and you start talking about Jews in Peru, they'll say Guillermo Bronstein. Like he he's one of the most open, openly, I don't know, willing to talk. And most people look for him when they want to learn more about Judaism and and um, I think his uh, his leadership has been key. He he is now retired. He's he's over. He turned seventy, I think, last year or a couple of years ago. And but he's still he's still a very important and significant figure in this community. 
Can you comment on the phenomenon of conversion? How does the Peruvian Jewish community demonstrate the complexities of conversion in Jewish life? This is one of the topics I find most fascinating, given that um, it reveals so much about how race and identity are interplay are playing in, in Peru uh, and, and how much more important sometimes they are than religious um I don't know considerations. So um conversion is has been key for a small community like Peru's uh in which there wasn't a critical amount of people to to start a community to begin with. But um how do you convert to Judaism in 1936 in Peru? It's, who wants to convert to Judaism in Peru in 1936? So it can be argued that at first people who were willing to convert to Judaism were people who were marrying uh, immigrant-born, um, foreign-born Jews uh, in order to enter this newly formed community in the 1930s and 40s. I don't know how those conversions went, but it allowed for a community to exist. So they were really important at first. Uh, then I, I would say that conversion became a means to, for some people it became a mean, it became a means to, I don't know, socially advance, to become more European, to become a bit more white, especially when Jews started being seen as white or European or non-indigenous, non-Chinese, nor no, black Peruvian. So I would say that that might have happened after the 1960s when there was like a reconfiguration of social classes in Peru. Um, and then and then there's this whole thing about conversion. We've had conversion of what of the of what are called emerging communities in the 1980s and, and that has posed a serious challenge to the immigrant founded community, the one that's recognized all over the world. Um, so these emerging communities, not only in Peru, but in different places in Latin America, but especially in the late 1970s and 1980s. And this is documented by a book recently published by Graciela Moszkowski, which was, uh, it has been featured uh, in, in New York, the New Yorker or something like that. The book's called The Prophet of the Andes. It's a must read. Um, so there were these people who were first Catholic and then they, they came from rural areas or cities far from the capital city in Peru and everything centralized in, in Peru in the capital city in Lima. So this family came from Cajamarca, they from a rural part of it in which uh, reading the reading straight from the Bible wasn't allowed to fall to believers. So at some point, this person starts reading straight from the Bible and realizes that Sunday is not the day of rest. It's Saturday and whatever. The way, you know, the ancient Israelites lived is very different. And so the Bible says something and Catholics are doing something else. So he migrates from Catholicism to some sort of reform Christianity, form of Christianity. And, and then he he starts learning more and more. And from a fundamentalist reading of the Bible, he decides that he needs to be Jewish, like the chosen people. So they come to Lima and they start talking to one of the rabbis and see how they can convert. And they become so, so uh, 
pious and have this religious fervor that they actually they move all these these rabbis the rabbi from the community in peru who has had just arrived rabbi kraus in early the early 1990s and they bring these rabbis from israel and they actually perform a massive conversion but and this is really i'm sorry about how how lengthy this is has become but this is very important they were willing to support them in their into their conversion and to give them the tools to convert and the recognition and bring the rabbis as long as they committed to moving to israel but they were not expected to join the community in lima so what does that tell us it tells us that people from a different origin social and ethnic origin are not necessarily welcome in the Jewish community because being Jewish is in Peru and countries like Peru is not just a matter of religious beliefs, of course, like elsewhere, but it's also a matter of class and ethnicity and experience. So there were some of these mass conversions or group conversions in which people, 80 people were, were being converted, which is very unusual. They weren't being, uh, you know, led or organized by the community, but th this fine print, you know, the will help you as long as you don't try to become a part of the community in, in Lima, I think it reveals the importance of these other, you know, social factors and how important to how important it is for this community to to thrive and to survive. And I actually, I mean, this this sounds awful, but this is to, to you know, in order to survive, it needs to stay upper middle class. So it it is challenging. And so if you are if you were born Jewish, but you were born with the right zip code, and you married a, someone who was born Jewish, then fine. If you weren't born Jewish but you found through religious belief, you found Judaism through religious belief, it's really hard for you to enter this community. So you'd better go off, go to Israel. Who was Ephraim Goldenberg? Can you say more about him? So Ephraim Goldenberg was, um, he was born in Peru, uh, the son of um, immigrants from Bessarabia. He, and he was the first, um, the first member of the Jewish community in Lima, a Peruvian-born member of the Jewish community, to enter politics at a high level. He was the minister of what you, what people in the U.S. would call the Secretary of State, the Minister of Foreign Relations with at Fujimori's first um, government. And then he was the Minister of Economics, like the Treasury um at some point so but he was a businessman he wasn't into politics first he was invited to join you know the the cabinet of of ministers uh because he was a successful businessman and he had strong ties with uh with a member of the japanese peruvian community a very prominent member he, they worked together he had been to japan many times so but but he was and, and the community was really I mean, they were they weren't as um, I don't know they they weren't really they were concerned once Efraín Goldenberg uh, entered government because they thought it would expose 
the whole community to attacks or or if if he if he fared poorly, it, all Jews in Peru were going to be you know responsible for for and if he if he if, if his performance would be good, then it would be his own success. You know, there there was a but, but there, that, that was in the early 1990s. So this is the first generation of Peruvian-born uh, men and women who are experiencing this. This, but it's it's very late actually. If you compare it to Brazil or Argentina for Jews in Peru to enter politics at such level, but he was the one who who started it all. Can you tell us about Eliane Carp? Why is she noteworthy? So Eliane Carp was the wife of President Alejandro Toledo. She she's Jewish. Well, she is the wife. I don't think they they got divorced. Um, she's Jewish. She she I want to say she's a Belgian Jew who at some point she made Aliyah or something, and she met Alejandro Toledo, who was the president of Peru between two thousand one and two thousand and six. Uh, I think they met at Stanford in the U.S. And um, at first, I think, I mean, it, it, she was the first the first uh, lady. That's how we call the wife of the, like the uh, the wife of the, of the president or, I don't know, in, in Peru. And she was a Jewish first lady. So, um, la primera dama. So... At first, also the community felt a little bit, and but she was also very vocal, uh, defending the indigenous populations because she's an anthropologist. But then she was also involved in some corruption <laughs> things, you know. So, and and she was very she was critical of the Jewish community in Peru, like saying they they are you know they are very middle class and they are wealthy and they don't care about the actual problems of the actual people. And so at some point, I, I think uh, it created some sort of tension between her and and the community, although it wasn't, it, it never, uh, uh, you know, blew off proportion, but um, no, not, not her, she wasn't really fond of the community, the community wasn't really fond of her either. But at some point, now that I'm, I'm, I'm recalling, when Alejandro Toledo with other presidents from Peru have been involved in a massive corruption scandal in Latin America called uh, Odebrecht, which is this Brazilian company that that would um, you know that would win all these um, concessions from the state to build I don't know uh, you know these great infrastructure projects or highways and and they all I mean it, it was very corrupt and and Toledo was was linked to one of these corruption charges or he i don't know they were uh, investigating him for money laundering or uh, illicit i don't know money whatever and it it did um some uh, magazines or something started saying that Toledo was going to flee to Israel because Elian Karp was Jewish and then if you get to Israel then they they won't be able to process him and bring him back which never happened. Actually, Toledo ended up in the U.S. and he went to jail in the U.S. and he's been they they've brought they've brought him back. But um, but you know, it the fact that she was Jewish led to this sort of speculation. So it sometimes actually they had this um, the cover of the magazine featured Toledo 
dressed like a Haredi uh, man, which it was preposterous. There's a quote that I'd be curious to ask you about on page 112, where you write as follows. It is also worth noting that Israel is the destination of some Peruvian families who converted to Judaism, part of a phenomenon that is taking place in the region as a whole, and that is possibly associated with the rise of evangelical Christianity in Latin America. From the 1990s onward, there have been groups of people from the Peruvian provinces who wish to convert to Judaism. Some of those groups have Jewish ancestry, as is the case of Jews from some towns and cities in the rainforest. Others have converted as a result of a change in religious conviction, possibly motivated by a Christian fundamentalist reading of the Old Testament. It is worth noting that these converts do not enter the Jewish community in Lima, the only organized and the dominant Jewish community in the country. Lacking affinity with Limeño Jews, in terms of class interests, common experiences, social distinction, and religiosity, these groups of families tend to emigrate to Israel in order to lead Jewish lives. Unlike converts who share the same background as Limeño Jews and convert in order to have a family and become part of the community, or converts who were raised Jewish but need to have a group of rabbis confirm their religious belonging, those from other parts of the community and from other social classes often go through orthodox conversions and remain observant. Hence, Israel has become the right destination for Peruvian Jews by conversion, but not for Jews by birth. Can you elaborate on this for us? Absolutely. Um, well, uh, this was written, it hasn't been published that long ago, but it was written almost nine or eight years ago, I think, at first. I would nowadays rewrite that portion a little bit, not the, the core of it. The core of it, I would still argue, is is right. But Israel has become, again, attractive for younger Jews uh, in, in Lima. So what I, I, I meant with that quote was what, what I was just telling, what I was just um, discussing a while ago, how this how the role of conversion, right? How conversion allows for, for a redefinition of what being Jewish is and how being in a post-colonial setting within an indigenous, American indigenous or Latin American indigenous past, and with some um, traces of even black slavery, uh, how that and how that is also uh, associated with uh, underdevelopment, with uh, being backwarded, with not being part of modernity, of capitalism, and how that makes people tell them that even though we share the same religious belief now, beliefs now, you don't belong with my community here because we don't share the same social values class. And, and that's, I think that's insane. But it's not insane. That's not what I want. It's just how the whole thing, the way things work in Peru. That tells more of how Jews, that how, of how Peru works than of how Judaism, I want to say, as a people work. Because they, these, many of these people, these Peruvians, uh, go to Israel 
and they thrive, I guess. Some people come back, of course. Um, but um, but they find uh, I guess a welcoming society. Not everyone's welcoming, and some people have to reconvert uh, once they are there. But um, but it's a much more diverse uh, society. I don't know with different. Everything has like a different meaning than than being here. It it happened to me once. I think I was. I yeah. I remember. I um I was riding a bus in Jerusalem about fifteen or twenty years ago. And I remember someone, I don't know, speaking Spanish or he heard how I was speaking Spanish with a very distinctive Peruvian accent. And he said, hey, where are you from? And I'm like, from Peru? Hey, I'm also from Peru, of course. And where, where exactly in Peru? And of course, I I told him from this like well-off, posh neighborhood. And he's like, oh, I'm, I'm from this not well-off, not posh neighborhood, of course. I, I, my ancestry is from the Ukraine and from Bessarabia and Romania and whatever his wasn't. Um, and he, we were both in Israel. And then, you know, this first approach kind of, it got very cold because the social differences from origin were much stronger than the fact that, hey, the two of us are here in Israel. And I, I didn't even manage to ask about if he was, I don't know, if he converted, if he, he had been born Jewish just uh, giving out where we had been born or we, where we came from in Peru was enough to, to to establish that we came from different worlds, even though we were in the same bus, the same city. I don't know. Uh, so so what does what I mean is that um, it in the 1980s, 70s, 80s, and perhaps 90s, if people had money in Peru, they either stayed here to produce, to create more money with the money they had inherited, or they went to the U.S., which is where most, I would say, Latin American Jews aspire to go to, right? Espe right, especially Florida. Florida is a huge, um, it's a hub of Latin American Jewry. That, that's where, you know, that's the promised land. Um, but if you didn't have enough money, for, if your parents couldn't afford sending you to school in Peru or in the U.S., then you'd go to Israel because the state would pay for your studies. And then, so... So, so some Peruvian Jews that were really wealthy would actually donate all this money to Israel, but, but they would die before they would send their kids to Israel. That was, I, I want to say, by the late 1980s, by the, by the late 20th century and beginning of the 21st. But nowadays, I think that has changed. First of all, there are a couple, there, there's this uh, college, now university in Israel, the IDC, the Herzliya um Reichman University, I don't know, which is, it's it's based in Herzliya and it teaches all of its classes in English. So many Latin American Jews don't have to learn Hebrew, a language that isn't really useful in the business world, for instance. But um, but they go there and they meet these other, I don't know, Panamanian Jews or Jews from wealthier backgrounds just like them. And, and that's seen, that's more accepted nowadays than it used to be before also moving to Israel for a couple of years it's not what it used to be right that you were really on the other side of the world it's easier to communicate the come and go flight the commercial flights are more available cheaper whatever there's so there's so I think there and nowadays also Israel with this whole startup nation thing going on has also become interesting it's cool to study something related to technology or work in high tech or innovation in Israel that 
and and companies and uh, innovation or technological schools here also acknowledge that um, that Israel is, is like a you know develop is part of a developed world, right? You have to think that from our point of view, we're in the third world, we're in the global south, and everything from the you know from the developed countries feels uh, I don't know like magic, so very very glamorous. So Israel, so that that has, I think, changed the view of some uh, people here, the views of some people here, but still it's not as, it doesn't give you, a, a, it's not as valued as living in either U Western Europe or North America. That That's, I mean, that's the best, a person, the best a person can do is either live in Western Europe or in, in the US, sometimes Canada, and then, Israel. Who was Rabbi Avraham Ben Hamu? Can you contextualize him? Rabbi Ben Hamu has been the the chief rabbi of Peru um, for many decades now. I think um, he came to Peru in 1968, uh, just a few weeks short of of um, a coup d'état led by General Velasco by um, Velasco Alvarado which changed many things in Peru. And he's a, he, he was born in Morocco. Uh, his wife, but he was born in Morocco, but he had to leave Morocco. I don't know exactly why, uh, under which conditions, but something about him being a youth leader, uh, defending Jew, uh, Judaism, and then they were the government or something being after, I don't know, Jewish youth. And then he left for, for Gibraltar, and I think they went. They went in. They were living in Argentina. He married there in Gibraltar. They lived, they went to Argentina or something like that. And then he he was appointed or he was hired um, as the rabbi of the Sephardic community here in Lima. And these were times in which Jewish congregations didn't. I mean, they had rabbis for like very short periods of time. Um, but he actually he has he he still lives here um and um and he 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 was a, a key figure in many ways he even though we, we were just talking about conversion his community didn't recognize any conversion but, but as, as it happens <laughs> there are many people within his congregation that ended up marrying people who weren't born jewish so it, it has been but but he also represents he, he kind of represents orthodoxy for Peru, like the way things should be. But it's not like the way, it's not like new or ortho, modern orthodoxy or the way of the revi religious revival has uh, has made, um, has set new conditions for what properly, what being properly Jewish means and or being in the, on the fringes or something. He represents old orthodoxy or old ways of being uh, Jewish because he comes from Morocco, right? So, so he has been like a pillar of of Jewish identity, which has also generated some friction because some people were like, you know what, he like he's out of touch with the new generation. He we needs to be more modern and to understand how things are evolving. But um, I actually I'm very fond of Rabbi Ben Hamu, um, and he. And the work he has done in how much, 50 years, 60 years almost, 50 something years uh, is unprecedented for this community. The, the, again, like Guillermo Bronstein, the uh, 
the ability to 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 provide even though it's not the school uh, but they were kind of involved in the school in the 1980s and 90s the the ability to provide some sort sense of stable jewish identities to a huge group of up to, to to families to generations of families i think has um it's not gonna be forgotten anytime soon what does your study teach us about processes of secularization what are the nuances and complexities of secularization in Peruvian Jewish life? In what ways is Peruvian Jewish secularization similar or different from Peruvian Christian and Catholic secularization? That's a that's a very challenging challenging question. Um, so one of the things that I found most uh, interesting was that there is all there is this myth, right? That keeps being you know shared about how the the first immigrants that came to countries such as mine uh were all observant of course all they knew about the world was judaism and jewish values and they all knew how to pray in hebrew and whatever and then they came to peru and well they sort of started their their attitude their habits their customs started changing to adapt to this new whatever culture and then I found that actually that was not the case. If you wanted to keep an observant religious life, you would never come to Peru. It's impossible to be an observant Jew in a country like this. Uh, because you need right more people to, to, to keep an observant Jewish life uh, properly. So, um, so most of the people that came here were actually already deviant in a way. I mean, they weren't really... If if they and and if someone came and wanted to be observant, he wouldn't last long here, not in Lima, not elsewhere. So so that myth was debunked. So no no, it was never a very observant community, and which is interesting because some people in these small communities tend to think of themselves as very I don't know very representative of what being Jewish is until they go to Israel or to New York or to Buenos Aires, where they find themselves as not being a part of what being a traditional, traditionally identified observant Jews is, right? You are actually secular, and that means you are very different from people who actually observe all the costumes and values and that. So I want to say, I would say that Jews, most Jews that came here and Jews that founded the organized community and the synagogues, uh, were already secularized in many ways. That doesn't mean that they didn't that they didn't believe in anything or that they were disenchanted, like in a Bavarian sense, disenchanted with the world. Uh, you know, it's never that dichotomic or it's never that simple. But they, most of them, didn't. I mean, weren't really concerned about the observance. And it's only I would say in the nineteen nineties that. How does that, I mean, for instance, in the 1980s or 70s, some people would say that you could uh, you could throw a party, like a bar mitzvah party at the synagogue and have and serve lobster. <laughs> and no one would say a thing or wouldn't have a mikveh. It's not until the 1990s then one of these rabbis from Israel comes and, and starts. It's not that the other rabbis didn't care, just people weren't paying attention. But in the 1990s, with... um with the with Chabad Lubavitch reaching the region, like having all these emissaries sent elsewhere, and we had one here, 
uh, challenging the old immigrant founded communities that you know these these communities are like okay we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna step up we're gonna see what everyone else is doing elsewhere and this like new or uh, uh, revived version of observance uh, observant Judaism starts to stick but not too much so like I've, I've spoken to rabbis here and it, and they tell and you ask them so for instance the Ashkenazi synagogue which claims to be orthodox and the rabbis they hire are orthodox or recognized as orthodox so if you ask them hey the you the, aside them I mean, from the minyan there's only one person who walks to shul or two most of them on shabbat uh, would drive to to services which is forbidden on shabbat and and if you ask him don't you care about that and he's like are you asking me if i would rather not have a minyan because people will not drive or so they they kind of I mean, they know that that would never be acceptable elsewhere, but in a community like this, they are dealing with people who are not observant. And the only link to something accepted is the fact that they didn't undergo a conversion. They were born Jewish. So it's very, the, the whole notion of being observant or religious and secular is challenged, I think. Um, and of course, it, it has to do with Judaism being a, a pre-modern culture, a religious culture, in which religion is just, it's important, but it's not everything, right? So you were asking about other group, religious groups. Um, so even though I would say Catholicism, it's still, it's still very relevant to many people in the middle and upper middle classes in Peru, um, there, the newer generations are feeling, you know, people are not getting married as much as they used to, or they're getting divorced. And the churches stand on, on divorced couples is still, I think, difficult. For instance, if you want to enroll your kid in a Catholic school, which was very, I don't know, uh, prestigious, a very prestigious school, but, but you got divorced then you cannot go to that school. So, you know, the next generation or then people start to to be um, less attracted to what the church has to offer because it, the church is not up to date to what's going on elsewhere. So I would say, I, I would actually argue that with Judaism in Peru, it has been the opposite. People has, has become, people have become more aware of the value of, of, of religious observance as they have traveled the world, Israel, as um, Orthodox and modern Orthodox Jews from the US have become more visible. There's like a Netflix show now about the Jewish matchmaking. So that has that on the one hand, then the, the Jewish agency uh, for Israel sending shlichim, you know, envoys who are observant, that has changed things. And I think people are, for instance, the, you know, the synagogues and the school are now, now trying to keep kosher. Um, even though it's very hard to keep kosher in a country like ours, and most people, if not everyone, doesn't keep kosher at home. So there's that, which I don't know how, if it's something, you know, symbolic exterior, if it's a reaffirmation of identity, if it has to be to do with this global network or interest in belonging to something larger globally, I don't know, but yeah. I would argue that that it it's it's going in a different direction, I think, than the Christian traditions. Can you tell us about the Asociación 
de Beneficencia y Culto and the Unión Israelita del Perú. What roles do these organizations play in Peruvian Jewish culture? You mentioned Unión Israelita del Perú and Asociación de Beneficencia y Culto, right? Yes. So Asociación de Beneficencia, oh, Sefaradí. Um, so we spoke about Rabbi Guillermo Bronstein, who was, who is, well, the, the meritus rabbi of the Yeke Conservative Masorti Synagogue, which is also called Asociación de Beneficencia y Culto, 1870, 1870, because it was founded by Yeke Jews in the late 19th century. Asociación de Beneficencia Sefaradí is the Sephardic um, congregation, uh, which is the smallest congregation nowadays. And you'll find that's the congregation that used to be led by Rabbi Ben Hamu. He has retired, but he still, you know, sometimes leads services there. Uh, because he's 85 or 90, I don't know how old. Oh, he's very, yeah, he's, he's, I think he's probably 90 now. Um, and they hired a new younger rabbi. The other, the Masorti congregation also hired a younger rabbi. Um, and of, you have to remember that for us to hire new rabbis means to bring someone from another country and with their families and try and convince them to stay. Both Rabbi um, Benhamo and Guillermo Rabbi Bronstein have managed to stay for decades, but that, that that wasn't easy. People Peru wasn't quite an attractive country. I don't know. So and and Union Israelita Peru is the Ashkenazi Orthodox synagogue, but still both the, the congregants aren't Orthodox. Uh, Union Israelita Peru is the largest uh, congregation in, in in town in the country. Um, but it, it's supposed to cater to Ashkenazi Jews, but usually the last few rabbis they have hired are all Mizrahi or Sephardic. So, and, and at some point, Sephardi and Union, these two congregations have discussed merging. By the time I was finishing the, uh, my dissertation and, and, and uh, before publishing the book, they had already settled on it or no, because they needed... The Sephardi, the Sephardi congregation had become had shrunk significantly, but um, at some point someone found the money to hire a new rabbi, and they are but they are doing many things together, and at some point they should merge, which I think uh, is meaningful in so far as ethnicity or language origins or you know um the the liturgy or the style of 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 Judaism cannot be sustained by such a small population and then but it but it, it wouldn't but but they what what matters is being recognized as orthodox and um it doesn't matter if you pray like an Ashkenazi or, or like a Sephardic what was also interesting, I think, and it's, it, it, it is told in the book, is the fact that in the year 2000 or by the late 1990s, there was, I mean, they, they figured that the community was shrinking. So we've known this for a while, but we haven't been able to face the challenges of a dwindling, of an already small community that was uh, getting even smaller. So they decided to create a single Jewish community center in order to save uh, to to try and and avoid spending so much time so much money I'm sorry and resources in security 
you know, the, the, the whole the world was becoming very insecure with all these bombings, and, and um, also you know locally, so people were like, we need to. It's gonna be simpler if we just focus everything on one place, which is something that our community, other small, other small communities did. And the and the Sephardic community said, fine, let's let's have the three congregations, the Masorti, Ashkenazi, and the Sephardic together under this. Each one would have their own space to pray. They didn't have to to mix together, but under the same building or so or structure. And Union Israelita El Perú de Ashkenazi said, no, we don't want to be in the same piece of land with the Masorti because they are not Jewish enough. And and the project fell apart because of that. And then there was some issue with a with some Jewish owned bank, uh, embezzling money or whatever. So so that that was also that 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 also tells tells you about how about the role of conversion, about the role of of religious observance, and about the need to be recognized by other institutions around the world as orthodox, as being fully Jewish. And those who are in doubt need to be set apart because we cannot mix together with them. And some people from that leadership thought that their kids shouldn't go to the same school with the kids from the Masorti community. But they, they are all, I mean, if you're lucky now, your child is getting married from someone from, from the Masorti community. So unlike other communities, for instance, Costa Rica, the community of San Jose in Costa Rica, in Costa Rica has this school, the Jewish school, and they they have the reform community complete. They, they are not allowed to send their kids to the Jewish school because they don't consider them fully Jewish. For lucky for us, we've always had the people from the Yeke congregation, from the Masorti congregation. The, the Masorti congregation is a, a, a partly owner of the of the school but there there was there was for this older generation this uh, reluctancy about having their kids study together now they're all getting married if you're lucky <laughs> so so well there's that but but they but i find the interest i find it interesting that Jew, the the Sephardic Ashkenazi i don't know distinction does it isn't really relevant hasn't been relevant for decades actually what matters is being recognized orthodox or masorti or reform can you describe the origins and evolution of the jewish association of peru yes so i found that um so even though there had been jewish presence in lima from the late 19 the late 19th century um it's only in the 1940s that these you know groups of jews from different parts of the world from turkey from um from the ottoman empire from um um from eastern europe and some different parts from of eastern europe from poland or from nowadays poland i don't know depends on what time they they came or Bessarabia, or the Ukraine, or Romania, um, and then Jews from France and Central Europe, um, that they, at some point, they decided they were going to do something together. They had enough power, I think, and they decided that they were going to stay put in Lima, that they, they aren't going back, not to Europe, not to the formerly the former Ottoman Empire, and they aren't going to 
to to to to to Palestine slash Israel anytime soon. No, let's say this is the early nineteen forties, um, and they are doing well enough to have the first generation of uh, college graduates from Peru. So we have the first generation of Peruvian. I don't know if they were Peruvian born, but people who came here as teenagers or or as young kids sometimes, and some of them born here, who went to the university and graduated as um, as physicians, lawyers. So you know, once they they graduated from those um, professions, they they learned more about you know civil society in Peru and how to be a citizen. So they created this association to, but the other thing that I find it interesting is the fact that they all consider themselves one, one community, right? Whereas perhaps a couple of decades earlier, they would have said that someone coming from the Ottoman Empire or a Sephardic Jew is a, a different, a completely different species from an Ashkenazi Jew because they didn't even speak the same language. So I think the 1940s are very interesting because they, they have enough power and wealth to not only uh, establish themselves as a as a legal entity, let's say in the country, they're, they're officially publicly an entity, but also it shows also how how religious tolerance or openness to to non-Christian denominations and non-Catholic denominations is is making Peru a more modern country, I guess, uh, because there's a there's an amendment or a new constitution, a legal constitution that also states that uh, there's freedom of religion or freedom of cult. So that also makes it easier for non-Catholics to say, okay, we're here, we're gonna be, you know, we're 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 part of 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 society. So I I found that quite interesting. This is in the 1940s, and in a very short period of time, they create this new this Jewish day school. Um, but the, it's, in, it's interesting how they um, and, and well they established the the there were a couple of youth Zionist movements of Zionist youth movements and they created a, a sports club and and then they built they didn't have one synagogue they had you know three four buildings so I think it, it shows it's a, a historical landmark of of Jewish. Uh, of Jewish Peruvian of the Jewish Peruvian experience. Can you tell us about Diego de Leon Pinelo? Why is he important? Well, th this is re related uh, to what we were just talking about. So Diego <laughs> Leon Pinelo, well, the, the Jewish Day School, which we mentioned, is the the most important socializing entity of Jewish a Jewish identity promoter in in the country, or the only one, perhaps can be argued or the most successful one um which not only you know provides jewish identity and a link or a, you know some sort of link to israel and other jewish communities but it also defines how limeño jews distinguish themselves from other people around the world like they have their own you know way of talking their accent anyhow their own costumes so um Leopinello is the name of the school, which is, I find it fascinating because Leopine, uh, the thing is, um, before 1946, yeah, um, so most of, most of educa all education in the country basically was 
or a good education in the country was in the hands of, of the Catholic Church, basically. Aside from a couple of schools that were actually um, uh, led or were were owned by by reformed non-Catholic uh, churches, so but but mainly the 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 powerful people, the elite in the country, sent their kids to 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 Catholic schools, basically. And of course, we all wanted to be part of the elite, or at least live like they live so we well this was 100 years ago or so um so many jews actually sent their kids to either they tried and if they could they managed to send their kids to a catholic school but other jews sent them to these um english uh, the bilingual i don't know schools you know for us in non-english or or territories that weren't conquered by or colonized by by the english uh, nowadays, learning English and being bilingual and studying in English or being associated with England or the U.S. is a uh, is 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 is, is, is uh, shows that we are part of the of the modern world. It's it's very important. Um, like when I speak to my relatives in England and they are like considering what school they want to send their kids to, they couldn't care less. Of course, if they learn English or it's a British school, everything is a British school. So they're like, is it a Jewish school? It's a more diverse, a more progressive. I'm, I'm guessing, well, the same might happen in some in the English parts of, of Canada, the English speaking parts of Canada, or I don't know. So here in Latin America, it's very important. It's a, a very... Uh, significant a very a, a very tr uh, valued it, it's uh, it's very valued as a sign of social position so social status so um so anyway so these kids were being sent to these uh presbyterian or i don't know some english schools that were, schools in which they would learn english but they were so, they were also exempt from learning from from you know the religion classes or something and they're at, at about the same time, there were these other new schools that were being created that were not religious. I would say the 1930s or 40s. But the people that arrived before had no other... I mean, they could go to a state school, but they still were being exposed to Catholic culture and Catholic lessons. So because Catholicism was... was uh, It was not... We, didn't, we never had like an actual separation of religion and state. That's not how things happen here. So... Um, so anyway, so at some point there were so many kids in the Anglo Presbyterian Anglo I don't know what Christian school that um the teachers were saying the teachers at the university were saying were saying to these graduates perhaps you wanna create your own school you have enough kids to just have a Jewish school and people were like okay no and then you know what this was. Peru in the 1930s and 40s, uh, a very a not densely populated area. The majority of the population would live in, in the rural areas. Anyhow, it wasn't a very modern country or industrialized at all. So it was very easy to just meet important or influential people at university. So these were the, the college professors, right? The law and medicine professors telling these Jewish kids graduating from university, you might want to have your own school. So so they were like, okay, fine. And then, then they, through these teachers or through these college professors, they met 
the Minister of Education and people who helped them out and they created this, this school. They also um, communicated with people from Argentina and from Israel to see how, how, how they could do that. And and at the, at the time of you know naming the school, they would usually, they should have named the school, I don't know, Albert Einstein or Heim Weizmann, I don't know, David Ben-Gurion, or whoever was popular among Jews, I don't know, Rambam. Um, but then someone who was not from the community, one of these teachers said, why don't you name the school Diego Leon Pinello or Leon Pinello? Why? Because Leon Pinello was a marrano, you know, um, uh, um, a converse or a new Christian uh, in who, who was the, the grandson, I think, from someone who was persecuted uh, by the Inquisition, but they came to Peru, and and he was he was probably the mo one of the most successful or visible Marranos uh, that uh, the Peruvian history has because he became the president of Universidad de San Marcos, which is the oldest university in the Americas. It was founded, you know, when Peru was a viceroyalty of 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 the Iberian uh, crown of 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 of, um, of the of the colony, la colonia, the colony of the Spanish colony. So, and and Lima was the capital of of the viceroyalty of Peru. So this was a very important institution. It's it's old and it's powerful. I don't know. So for them to have or to acknowledge that they used to have a president in I don't know the 17th century or something that had Jewish ancestry <laughs> was very meaningful, and. It is revealing to me that instead of, you know, saying, you know, it's the 1940s, people are trying to establish a Jewish state and they said, OK, let's do it that way. You know, it tells to me, it tells how people were willing not only to to accept how they were seen by these non-Jews who were sympathetic to the cause, but they, you know, but they didn't know much about Jewish history, I guess. And then how how they were still how this way of being seen by others was defining how they were going to be a part of society. I, I, I still cannot believe how to this day we haven't even changed the name of the school. And we're still, like there are some other schools, for instance, in Argentina that might be called a Jewish school, uh, Don Jose San Martin, you know, and, and they connect these completely different figures, like a, a national figure with, a, with the Jewish identity. So this is odd. It doesn't say the word Jewish in any part, but it's like Colegio Leon Pinelo. And most graduates of the school have no idea who Leon Pinelo was. That's also striking. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that's also worth mentioning, or I thought it was worth mentioning in the book. You write as follows on page 41. Uh, I'll, I'll share the quote with you. In this context, Jews in Lima, like the, just like the descendants of Arab immigrants in the country, are classified as quote-unquote foreigners, the term having a positive connotation, and or quote-unquote whites, both highly desirable features related to urban cultural capital and lifestyle. The situation came to pass once changes affecting two of the groups that used to hold power in the country, the Catholic Church and the oligarchy, provided the right conditions for Jews as a minority and a group to enter the newly restructured upper middle and upper classes in Lima, 
changes in the Catholic Church's attitude and discourse regarding Judaism and the crisis of the traditional oligarchy in Peru created new forms of affinity between Jews, both as a religious and immigrant minority and non-Jews. This affinity has been recently redefined by new ways of thinking about quote-unquote belonging in general. One such case is clearly illustrated by those who argue that globalization and digitization have altered the relationship between nation states and their citizens. This is also expressed by changes in terms of membership, particularly though not exclusively in Europe, where nationalist sentiments have emerged among nationless groups or quote unquote nations. Can you elaborate on this for us? Well, as I was saying, I think earlier, it's interesting how the word globalization is highly charged, right? It can mean something very valuable or something uh, that, you know, you want to step away from, um, it, it, depending on the moment and the place in the world. So I was saying how belonging in the upper middle classes in a country such as Peru, you know, with this, uh, in this post-colonial setting, um, means or is it always helps if you have some sort of European background or if, if you can uh, state that you are not part of the oppressed people in this you know founding story of, of this country so um the fact that but but of course at some points in history having uh, different identities or being coming from a different country could have um uh, created some, uh, you know, sentiments of dual loyalty, you know, or not being part of, of, of anything. Enough. But Peru is a country which I would say has a very weak sense of, I don't know, patriotism, um, national identity. I don't know if it's weak, but um, it's contested or we don't really know. We're, we're still trying to process what happened to us. Um but it's it's different even from other post-colonial countries like Mexico or Argentina. We we still don't know how how we fit there and how how are who is a citizen and who is not and who is part of of the societal I don't know fabric and who's not. So what I what I saw what I found is that uh, this whole globalizing new forms of globalization that uh, uh, that emerged in the 1990s with neoliberalism and you know with the European Union and double citizenship and people trying to pursue this, this. at some point people were like okay so now I do I want to get that passport you know that passport from Austria or from whatever some from France like non-Jews were doing it from Italy for instance or from Spain and then Jews were also like, at some point, I don't know, Romania became part of the European Union and people were like, hey, my grandparents were Romanian. They were looking for all these papers just so that even though nobody wants to come back to Romania and in their wildest dreams, but if it opened the doors to Western Europe, then I don't know, it became, a, this was really interesting. So how um, this this past that has been that for some people had had been so so painful right of persecution of especially with Ashkenazis 
now became a gateway to to the developing world, to developing economies, to to progress, to technology, and even if you never left your country, if you never left Peru, you still could you know sport that double citizenship, that that European passport, and that gives you so much. You you're more valuable as a person even here, right? which is I don't know. Um, it's something we all have to have to deal with here. Um, so now, at the same time, this this also happened to, for instance, people from Japanese descent. Once Japan became this, you know, uh, really powerful country in the 1990s, there was actually a movement of Peru is the second largest Japanese diaspora in the world. The first being Brazil, because there, there were all these Japanese people that were brought to Peru as slaves once black slavery was abolished. So it's a very okay, also a complicated story. But at some point, you know, Japan became this uh this um this really powerful country. And in the 1990s there was a, a really large movement of people pursuing Japanese nationality and moving to Japan, Peruvians, of course non-Jews. So it is in, in this setting that I that I, I write about that, right? The importance of, of being global, cosmopolitan, especially if you can um, you can prove that you come from a, a country that is now highly developed. Of course, if you come from I don't know, uh, like myself, the Ukraine or Moldavia, then you cannot enter the European Union. So <laughs> that's it. You're, you're stuck with your Peruvian passport. There's also this, given the fact that Peru um, had a like a very conf uh, a very highly visible um, political conflict uh, during the 1980s, and they had we had terrorism and like a civil war, uh, and also poverty. Peru had lots of barriers of entry into other countries. It, it it was a very, I mean, this whole the ability to move freely around the world is something that I'm I'm sure people from from Canada or from the US or from Australia might not be always aware of. But for us, uh, the fact that we cannot move freely around the world, we are considered. I mean, we are we can move to in with between Indian countries, but um, we're considered. We don't, they don't want us there, so. The fact that people could do this and forego, even though Peru was welcoming to our our close ancestors, but then the fact that people could be as if they were from these better countries, then I think was very important in that particular setting. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about your current work? What have you been researching since completing this book? Where have your attention and your efforts gone? Well, I I took <laughs> some some months to to rest, but um, this is what I'm trying to to next. I've, well, actually, at first I was interested in this topic, and then this professor told me you should you know study the Jewish community, and then I'm coming back to to this previous source of interest. I wanna see and compare how um, Christian Zionism has evolved both in Guatemala and Peru, which are the countries I'm, I'm, I've got access to. So I, I was particularly intrigued and motivated by the move of the Guatemalan embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which happened uh, a few years ago. I think it was 2017 or 2018. 
And it also, well, Guatemala is something that needs to be studied. I'm, I'm fascinated with what, by what, what's going on there. You know, a country, one of the countries that has um, that has the largest evangelical Christian population, so people migrating from the Catholic Church to evangelicalism, um, of course, with a heavy influence from the U.S., and how it has meant that there's this public and open support from for Israel. Uh, so that that's something that, that that's a source of interest for me. Then I'm, I'm also interested, not only that, but how Judaism is being viewed and appropriated by these groups, these Christian Zionist groups. But in some, I wonder if they just care about Judaism and Israel, but not Jews, which is the case in Brazil. It's being studied by Michel German and other people in Brazil. I wonder if that's the case in Guatemala, and I want to see what's going on here in Peru. That it's also it's it's not the same as Guatemala. We haven't had a, a an evangelical president, but we're there's some movement here. There's also people rallying for Israel, even though Israel is on the other side of the world. People have never met a Jew. They don't know nothing about Zionism, but I have seen people like very humble people giving all their money to the to the Jewish state. And you know, and from coming from a very poor country, so there's something there that I've, I'm 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 trying to I'm working on on a project there, which is something I'm I'm looking forward to to presenting at some conference, hopefully next year. Thank you. That sounds phenomenal. It sounds Doesn't like extraordinary it? research and so important. And I'm so grateful that you're undertaking this scholarship for the benefits of all your future readers. Thank you, Ari. This has been a great pleasure for me. As, as we bring today's dialogue to a close, I'm signing off as Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books and Jewish Studies podcast. Today, it has been my blessing to be in dialogue with Romina Yalonetsky. She is full professor in the Department of Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences at the Universidad de, de Ingeniería y Tecnología in Peru. We have been discussing her newly published book, Gente Como Uno, Class Belonging and Transnationalism in Jewish Life in Lima, published in Boston by Academic Studies Press 2021. Thank you. I'm humbled to have had this dialogue with you today. Thank you very much, Harry.